What's up everyone and welcome to episode 127 of the Justin Inside podcast, a show where we talk to people involved in the world of alternative music and find out what makes them tick. Um, I hope everyone's well, I hope everyone's having uh, had a lovely week even, um, recording this on a, on a sunny Sunday afternoon, so if you can hear some man shouting aggressively outside that's because my neighbours are deciding to play out in the sunshine whilst I'm sat in my room recording boiling hot but thumbs up anyway yeah um i hope everyone's well uh haven't got much to report so that's why i just mumbled on about the weather for a little bit apparently um but i'm getting that gig itch i haven't been to a gig in it's only been about two weeks but i feel like if i'm not at a gig each week then i'm not doing anything but hoping to to go see cult dreams in southampton this week and also mortality rate in Southam- uh, not southampton in london which i'm super psyched for because their album that came out this year is fucking rad so yeah got that to look forward to uh which is going to be sick um but yeah before we get into to this week's episode properly and I stop mumbling on about crap, I uh, just want to say a massive thank you to everyone who gave feedback in regards to the Kurashi, still probably pronouncing that wrong, track that was played at the top of last week's episode. Uh, a lot of positive feedback from that. It seems like people like the element of me playing tracks at the top of the show. So yeah, if you are in a band, want to play a track off your upcoming release on this little podcast, then please get in touch. Uh, the email, I will put it in the description, but is just underscore and underscore insight at hotmail.co.uk. Um, also started the very, 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 very fa- low foundations of another project, which will be running alongside this podcast, which I'm excited slash nervous about hopefully going to get it out in november which seems like ages away yet but there's a lot of work that needs to go into it so yeah keep an eye out for that when that happens um finally before i introduce this week's guest who you probably already know because it's on the name of this episode and that's the reason you're listening but just to be completely transparent um i was so you may or may not be aware I record these interviews uh, sometimes a few weeks in advance maybe a couple of months in advance before they go out depending on scheduling and so on and so forth this one was recorded probably about a month ago I can't remember the exact date anyway since then I've had a bit of a clear out of my my laptop transferring things to a bigger hard drive uh, went to open the file today to do this editing the file had disappeared went into full-blown panic mode uh didn't know what i was going to do kind of had a bit of a breakdown um plugged in the old hard drive just yeah i don't know why i didn't do that in the first place but inevitably there it was so panic over and it means that i get to give you this wonderful conversation with my week my week with this week's guest uh there is touche amore and hesitation wounds vocalist jeremy bolm couldn't believe how honored i was to have jeremy on this little show that i do like it's credit to to you guys as listeners that how far the show has come that i'm able to to have people like jeremy on this show um he's an incredible vocalist both his bands are fucking rad and we get chatting about uh jeremy growing up sort of listening to grunge booking tours in the MySpace era for for when he was 
first sort of getting into music and going out with Touche Amore. Um, what the reaction sort of has been to him personally since the release of Stage 4, which is obviously a very personal record to him, but obviously the reaction of the people coming up and talking to him and what that the impact that's had had on him um and how hesitation wounds is just a different outlet for him and and yeah it's something that kind of works in tandem but it's just something fun as well so yeah please sit back enjoy the chat i have with jeremy and i'll see you on the other side Right, joining me this week on the Justin Insight podcast, I'm very honoured to have vocalist of Touche Amore and Hesitation Wounds, Jeremy Bomb. Jeremy, thank you very much for for taking some time out of your day to have a little chat with me. How, how's everything in your world? Uh, not too bad. Just uh, been awake for about an hour. Oh so. god, I always <laughs> forget the time difference. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's fine. I went and got a went and got a coffee, and now I'm just hanging out in my dining room. Lovely. Well. Yeah. As a as I mentioned briefly before I kind of hit record proper, the show is called Justin Insight. I like to take my guests kind of back to their their roots, their origins, so to say. Um, and how I always like to open things up is to kind of find out how what kind of got you into this world that we call alternative music. So, what was your kind of first introduction to to finding alternative music, punk, punk or otherwise? Um, when I was about guy. Um, I guess eight, mm. eight years old. Uh, it was it was definitely seeing Nirvana and Pearl Jam on MTV, right? And just being very enthralled by it. Um, I was I was really interested in music at a really young age. So as soon as I saw that, I uh, I, I begged my mom for uh, for ten bucks to go to the Warehouse Music, which was like the record store. At the top of my street to uh, to go buy ten on cassette, right? The, the Pearl Jam album, yeah. And uh, and I feel like it was probably the same month that I got Nevermind as well. It would have been ninety one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And you you said they're obviously kind of interested in music from from an early age. So what was it that kind of drew you to to any form of music in the first place? You know, I'm not sure. I mean. I, I I didn't like what my parents listened to. <laughs> right. Which was like country music and like Elvis and stuff like that. Um, I grew to end up loving country music in my adulthood. But, yeah. Um, but, you know, it was, I, I think I was interested in anything that sounded polar opposite to what my parents liked. <laughs> right, okay. So, so, you know, I was interested in like, I'm trying to think of some of the things that I was really that caught my ear when I was a kid like I remember like the thriller music video from Michael Jackson yeah. was like was like pretty pretty exciting to a young person because it you know it was like kind of like also a first step into what could potentially be an interest in horror and horror movies as a kid mm. uh, but yeah like I don't know I think I think I also just sort of like the attention that that uh, being a performer gave you as well. Like, I don't know why I was I was so interested in that. Yeah. Um, I have an older brother, so I was the younger brother. So I think like as a kid, there's that there's that uh, fight for attention. Yeah. You know? So uh, I think it could have been something to do with that. Uh, 
don't know. It was just, I think the expression and and just how exciting it all seems just really drew me in as a kid. Mm. And yeah. kind of from that aspect, you said like your parents were kind of listening to sort of country music and stuff, but I, I want to dig into this a little bit deeper down the line, but you kind of seem like a person that gets very sort of enamoured with music and kind of taken by music. So is that something that's a family trait or is it just something that you kind of gravitated to at a younger age? Definitely not a family trait. My older brother played drums um, when we got older, when, um, like when we got into junior high. Uh, my parents bought me a guitar and my brother got a drum set around the same time. Um, we never played music together, but we had competing bands right. fighting, fighting over who got to use the garage <laughs> yeah. through, through junior high and high school. But uh, yeah, my parents never never really cared that much. Like my, my parents were separated before I was born. Okay. So like, so my dad was just always a workaholic, and my mom was just working to keep the lights on. So yeah. she didn't really, she never really showed much of a hobby other than just raising us. So yeah, like I don't know what it was that why I was drawn to it so on my own. Um, I mean, my brother this day is still a fan of music and such, but you know, he his life took a very normal route. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then from kind of the discovery of uh, Pearl Jam and, and Nirvana and things, kind of, how did your musical taste evolve to to nearer what we kind of hear the music that you're playing? Like, what, where did you kind of discover the quote unquote more harder bands and like yeah. what bands were you listening to? Sure. So, uh, you know, I'm a total, I'm a total nineties kid because I was born in '83. So, right. Like, I'm, I'm so happy to have had the years of being a teenager that I did because I think it's arguably some of the best time, some of the, definitely the best time for for what would be alternative music. Yeah, you know. So yeah, between Nirvana and Pearl Jam, then of course, like I just I wanted everything to do with with the grunge movement and then leading into then punk with like. So, like, but when I found Nirvana and Pearl Jam, and of course, like, Smashing Pumpkins and yeah. the Silver Chair and, and Bush and, uh, and all of that, you know, um, to even the more lesser known bands like Candlebox and, and God, there's just so many of them screaming. <laughs> yeah. It was just like, it was an overwhelming wave of just grunge for, you know, the early 90s. And then Green Day broke. And, you know, my brother and I loved Doopy. And uh, then, you know, Offspring. And so that's when we kind of leaned into what would be considered, you know, obviously like major label punk rock. Uh, but then I found like no effects and stuff like that. Um, and then I'm trying to think. So I forget what it was exactly. But, oh, no, I know exactly what it was. It was corn. Like yeah. I found. <laughs> yeah. So, like, you know, in junior high, I always say, like, you're allowed to be the biggest poser. Where, right. Like, it's it's the only time in the world where, like, you can wear a no-effect shirt one day and then a corn shirt the next yeah, day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And still feel like you have an identity. <laughs> uh, 
But yeah, like I found, you know, I found Corn in '94 because uh, I saw the Blind music video come on this music video station that was like LA specific, called the Box, which was basically just like a, it was like a, a music video jukebox station. Um, so I saw the Corn Blind video on that, and then I bought that self-titled record, and that piqued my interest towards an aggressive, well, a, a, a hyper-aggressive style of music from yeah. um, And from there, found Deftones, because they would show the Seven Words music video, and then Marilyn Manson, because they would show the Get Your Gun music video. And I remember I got Portrait of an American Family from Marilyn Manson, and that was the first time that my parents were not excited about what I was listening to. <laughs> To this day, I feel like Portrait of American Family is far and away the most offensive and scary, quote-unquote, Manson record. Oh, yeah, Uh, hands down. Hands down. It had the most just explicit visuals and content and lyrics than anything he ever did after that. Yeah, no, I I totally agree. Yeah, so there's there's like a paragraph in that that has, it's just like, you know, I was raised in a Christian household. So that didn't go so well. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like the first album of my mom like, took away from me. Uh, but of course you're a kid, so you still find ways to listen to it. Um, but yeah, and then, so I, I got, I got, I leaned more into metal and then and, and industrial. Like I like Nine Inch Nails and the KMFDM and Skinny Puppy and all that sort of stuff. Like yeah. sort of, there's a record store, there's two different record stores within like two blocks of where I live. So between going to Warehouse Music, which was the corporate chain, to buy cassettes, and then there was a store on the top of my street called D.B. Cooper's, uh, which was like a used record store, um, I would just, anything that looked evil or aggressive or anything like that, like, I would just, you know, uh, I would I would save my allowance and buy it. Yeah. Just take a, take a chance on it. So I found, yeah, so then, I, you know, it was like, I leaned into aggressive music and then uh, eventually in 96 bought the OzFest 96 VHS which had Earth Crisis on it and that was my introduction to hardcore. Okay, cool. Yeah. So then in terms of you kind of playing music yourself you you mentioned that you kind of got a guitar when you were younger so was it always the guitar that you initially wanted to, to pick up and play or was it just sort of circumstances led to that kind of Venture. Well, I yeah, I played guitar in bands all through high school and or junior high, high school, then after high school for a long time. Um, because I never thought of myself as someone who could ever sing. I had an awkward voice, right? And it just it never seemed like anything that would ever happen for me, you know. And uh, but then as I found way more aggressive music throughout my life. You know, I started doing like backup screaming bullshit in the band, <laughs> yeah. I was playing, in the band I was playing guitar in. And then when the band did, I had been playing guitar in for most of my, you know, teen years through early 20s. Once I left that band, I was like, well, fuck it. I want to, I'll try just singing in a band. What's the, what do I have to lose? Yeah. And uh, at that point, I was, I had been really into, like the late night, like 90s, late 90s, early 2000s screamo stuff. Yeah. Uh, 
like Seisha and Orchid and Page 99 and bands like that. And there's definitely no glamour and, and, uh, and, uh, talented vocals in any of those bands. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like, well, fuck, if Seisha can get away with sounding like that, then I could certainly get away with sounding like how I sound. Yeah. So that's when I started to share with, with random friends. So was it was the want to always kind of be a, a vocalist or was it just as you kind of experimented with bands and played around with different bands that the kind of the want to try it kind of came along i think i don't think i ever had the confidence to try to be a singer even though as a guitar player i was never very good right i was more the, I was more the when i played guitar in bands i would end up i think i broke every guitar <laughs> Right. Like, I seriously broke every guitar. Like, I shouldn't. Also, I just lived my life where I shouldn't have nice things because this is like. <laughs> if, I, if I put any money into anything, I will no doubt break it. Uh, so, yeah, like, I just. I broke everything and always had to get things repaired and just. Uh, you know, I was a very. Uh, when, I, when we were playing, I would just get too into I should, I should just try singing because microphones are a lot easier to do. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and yeah, it just, it, it, I, I found a real love for it when we played our first show. It felt, it felt very, it felt like the right place for yeah. me. Even though the first year of Touche I played with my back to the audience probably the entire time. Mm. <laughs> and before we kind of go, dive into to Touche a bit, bit more, I, can I ask, what, where, whereabouts was it that you grew up, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah, I grew up in Burbank, California. So, obviously, I can only speak of scenes over here in the UK, which are a lot kind of smaller, and I know that, obviously, America is this massive, vast country. So, what was the... I always find it interesting, like, what was the kind of scene like in Burbank, like, for you growing up? Like, was there much of one? Did you struggle to, to find shows to go to? Like, what was it kind of like in that aspect? So, Burbank is, is basically just... Right. Okay. But it's it's the media city capital of the world. So basically, like, you know, if you're if you're from England, you you or ever, anywhere, you probably imagine that if you never, especially if you've never been here, that Hollywood is where all the magic happens. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's because that's what that's what the world has told us. You know, we've, we've been we've been told that Hollywood is where the movie stars are, but Burbank is actually where every single movie studio and TV studio and record label all is. In oh, okay. One town. So it's like, uh, just up, you know, surrounding where I, my home was, was Warner Brothers, ABC, Disney, Nickelodeon. Uh, I went to the high school that they filmed The Wonder Years at. Oh, wow. Like, it's just, it's, it's a very cinematic, weird little town, which makes <laughs> yeah. it very which makes it a very strange place to grow up because I've had a talk with some friends. So also Clayton and Tyler from Touche are also from Brazil. Yeah. So three of the five of us. And um, it's, uh, it's in a place that you would think would be so immersed in culture. It was actually very devoid of culture. Okay. Everyone who lives there in one way or another has probably a family member 
who's working to sort of churn that machine to keep it going. To, you know, like everyone had parents that were workaholics, you know, that like my dad worked in, still does, still works in post-production. Um, my brother works in post-production. My mom worked in post-production. Um, and it's just, you know, everybody's just working so hard to get these shows on TV or in, you know, with these films made that like, there's no time to teach you about it. You're just learning everything from the TV. So yeah. like, for instance, I met Henry Rollins a couple of years ago at a Starbucks in Burbank and it was like nine o'clock at night and he was in there and I just got starstruck because I never met him before or anything like that. And uh, I started talking to him at the counter while we were both waiting for our drinks and um, had a friendly back and forth. But I, at the end, I was like, I have to ask you, why are you in Burbank? <laughs> yeah. and, and he was like, yo, straight up, he was like, I come here because no one recognizes me. He's like, no one knows who I am, nor do they give a fuck. Like, and I was like, well, sorry to, you know, yeah. <laughs> clearly I'm the one guy. And I told him that I was from there, and he was just very interested. He was like, God, what was it like growing up? Yeah, yeah. It's like this weird, it, it's, it's, it's truly hard to describe. I, I, I'm sure I did a poor job describing what it was like, but it's just, it's a, it, it feels like a black hole of where you're just sitting in the center and it's darkness where everything around you is just, it's media. It's, yeah. It's really strange. But, um, so, yeah, so that being said, I mean, my high school, there was, like, four of us that were interested in alternative stuff, and we had to basically entertain, our, entertain ourselves. So there was, like, a local vets hall, uh, like a veterans hall, that would let us put on shows. So basically all, all of our friends that played music in high school in our terrible fucking bands, uh, which is pay these veterans to let us use their little space for for a Friday night. Yeah. You know, it would really just be like us and 20 or 30 of the kids in the surrounding area between the two different high schools. Uh, you know, I just like my school was a lot of like metal bands and then the other high school, which is where Clayton and Tyler went, was a lot of like more punk bands. But it didn't matter because we were all just wanting to perform for one another so we would all just play at the same veteran hall every you know once a month yeah and, you know kind of a thing and i said that i wanted to kind of talk about this a bit more but obviously you from reading kind of other interviews that you've done and kind of the amount of stuff that you do not just with touche and hesitation wounds but obviously record label stuff you've done with before the bands it kind of seems that like music has always been kind of a a focal point in your life so has I don't want to say it's been the BN be all and end all, but was for you was music always kind of the end game of where you wanted to see your life progress? Uh, yeah, because I felt like I just didn't have anything like it. It spoke to me at such an early age, and I just never wanted to give up on it. Like, yeah, I mean, I like I was saying, like I played in bands after high school. You know, I worked, I worked at a I chose working at a record store instead of going to college, um, which was uh, definitely something that uh, my parents were not psyched on. <laughs> yeah. But I remember just telling my, telling my mom, like, probably in, a, in 11th grade, like, 
college like it, and and I thought it'd be a pretty easy conversation because we didn't come from a family that could afford something like that. Yeah. I was just like I was like, oh no. College and she and she I think had other aspirations or hopes for me because no one in my family had ever graduated college. Um <laughs> and we still haven't <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, so then, a year, you know, the next year, I, uh, I'm not taking classes to prep for that. So basically, I'm like taking the most bullshit, easy classes to pass. I'm like my senior year of high school. My, I, I'll never forget my, my, uh, my class schedule was like teacher's assistant, uh, English, uh, art. And then advanced art, and I'm telling you right now, I can't fucking, I can hardly draw a stick figure. I <laughs> my way into doing that, and because the teacher liked me, and then like a history class, and then a web page design. Like I had stopped taking math because I was bad at it, and I didn't need it for college credit yeah. anymore. So like, I just was preparing myself to just get the fuck out of out of school, and I had I had applied for a job at the record store. Uh, like two weeks before I graduated and I started the Saturday after I graduated. Oh, wow. And I was there for five years. That's that's cool. And and then while I was working at that record store when I was still playing a band and like when that band broke up and that band had toured but we had no reason to tour. We had no the, the fucking jaw that we had to even think we should tour was ridiculous because this is at the time when if you had enough plays on MySpace, you thought you could tour. Yeah, yeah. But booking tours in a, on a DIY level with MySpace was actually pretty easy because it was such a built-in machine that you could just post like, hey, we need a show. And yeah, yeah. Blah, blah, blah. So I booked between me and the guitar player we put these shows across the US and it was like really hard and all my all my craziest tour stories come from that era because yeah. we had no reason to tour and we shouldn't have toured. But it was the experience that I just wanted my entire life. Um, so when that band broke or when I left that band and I then started Touche, I'll never forget my mom and my brother just being like, Fuck, really? <laughs> <laughs> And me being like, yeah, why would I not? You know, at that point I was 24 or 25, and I was like, yeah, like, I'm not going to give this up. This is all I care to do. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I just, I, I, it's like my brain never wanted to stop. Like, if, if Touche had broken up in 2009, I would have definitely started another band in 2010. Yeah, just, yeah. Because I just don't know any better. <laughs> and... Something else I did I want to briefly talk to you about is um, you mentioned kind of the introduction to to Earth Crisis through the the Ozfest um, VHS, and yes. you are someone that that is straight edge, and obviously I I always find it interesting like what people's perspectives and how they kind of get introduced to that sort of lifestyle is because for for me personally like the band that kind of got me into it was Have Heart, and like my journey kind of went through there so. What what was your kind of take on Straight Edge? Why did you sort of decide to kind of follow that that line? Well, 
that was 96, so I would have been 13. And when you're 13 is when all your friends start, you know, stealing their parents' booze or, yeah. you know, or smoke, or they find weed and they're smoking it out of, you know, cans or apples or, or whatever they can to smoke weed, um, you know, tin foil, whatever. And uh, I just, it just never looked interesting to me. Like, my, my folks had asked me to not do drugs. And <laughs> yeah. They were nice enough to me, other than taking away my Marilyn Manson CD. Uh, somewhere, like, it just never, I, I just didn't want to disappoint them. And it just never really looked interesting to me. Mm. And uh, so when I found that, when I listened to Earth Crisis and was, I didn't understand what straight edge was immediately. I just saw these guys in, you know, camo pants and hoodies with X's on their yeah. hands. And, and I was just like, well, they look hard. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I bought the Gamora season end CD and then read into it and was like, oh, wait. So these guys just don't do drugs and that they just say they're straight edge and that's their excuse. Like, I don't have to explain to someone that, like, I don't do drugs because my mom asked me not to. That's like, <laughs> cool. much cooler for me to just say, I'm straight edge, you know, and they'll say, well, what the fuck is that? And I'll be like, fucking none of your business or learn about it. Or, yeah, yeah. It gave me a superiority complex. And, you know, when I was 14 to say I'm a part of something that, you know, I had never met another straight edge person until I was 18 years old because I, you know, I was from this devoid of culture town um, in L.A. So, like, me and my best friend at the time, Zach, who's someone I'm still very good friends with, like, we both were like, well, let's be strange, you know? Let's let's be this thing. And that was our own little version of our own identity throughout high school, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and, and that's good. And then from there is when I found, you know, Stripe and... Then, of course, did my homework and learned about minor threat yeah. and, and all of that stuff, of course. But um, that was my introduction to actual, like, hardcore, you know? That's cool. Right. Well, so if we get into Touche a little bit now, I don't want to go drag up the whole history of the band because people can read that on the internet if they want to. But um, part of like, what I do want to talk about is obviously from when you guys kind of started and to, to where you are now, like very much kind of following the DOI ethos and even though you kind of have like in the early days had that very much sort of 90s sort of screamo sound especially to to your voice like it was kind of it was very much a breath of fresh air for for what a lot of people were kind of listening to so was there kind of a, I don't know a moment when you realized that people were starting to pay attention to to what you guys were doing and like that this was maybe as you say, wanting to make music work, that this was the band that you could kind of pursue that for? Um, I would probably say it was in like 2009, a year after the band, because we'd done the demo, and the demo got a little uh, attention in, in LA. So we saw that starting a little bit. But for us, I mean, like, to have anyone come to see us play or sing along that we didn't, no, personally, it was like the first, like, oh wow, people are interested in LA. Um, and I, and during my bands, like, that I've done in the past, I, you know, those were all, I consider them all learning lessons. Yeah. You know, like, 
so one of the first things I did was like I was like well with this band I don't want to be the band that plays every weekend when people ask me for like advice for their band like oh you know I'm just starting out what kind of advice would you give I, I always say don't overplay your hometown yeah and, like your friends don't want to see you play the same venue twice a month like sorry it, 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 <laughs> it, it, it's boring so, in our first year as a band, we only played, like, I think, like, 10 shows or something like okay. that. Okay. Um, because I was just like, I just want to play when cool bands come to town and, and, you know, make friends with the promoter or, or hit up the band that you know are coming on tour and see if you can play with them, blah, blah, blah. So, like, we didn't play a lot of shows, and I think that helped because it made coming to see us play kind of exciting. I think. Yeah. And then, uh, then we had our drummer quit. And we were going to break up because we were just sort of like, well, fuck, man, if he's, you know, he was such a pivotal part of this band and we had all this, blah, blah, blah. So, but we had written the record, we had written Dead Horse. Right. And we were, but we had, we were going to break up. But I, I kind of was just like, well, let's just record it so we know that we did this, you know, that like, so we'll have this memory. And, at that, my best friend in the entire world, his name is Joey Cahill, and he runs the label 6131. Oh, right, yeah. And he was like, he had told me, he was like, well, I'll put that record out. And I was like, are you sure? And he was like, yeah, man. Like, and I was like, okay. And at that point, like, 6131 had started to really become a label. Like, yeah. Put out a Cruel Hand and the Blacklist of Seven Inch and, like, Swamp Thing and, like, a couple other pretty, pretty good hardcore bands. Rotting Out had just started... Um, and so I felt like that was taking a chance on us because he was doing more like straightforward hardcore. Yeah. And we were obviously this weird thing. <laughs> yeah. He was my best friend. He was just being a good friend. And so I was like, all right. And after we had recorded it, we all kind of were like, well, we shouldn't break up. Like, fuck that dude. Like, fuck that drummer. Like, let's let's just find another drummer. How hard can it be? So then we, we had a couple people fill in on like short little West Coast tours. And that was when we did Sound and Fury in 2009. And when we played Sound and Fury in 2009 and saw that reaction, that was, I think, for us, the moment of like, oh, shit. Yeah, like, yeah. Like, people are paying attention. And it was just, it was a very crazy experience. And that was when Trey, who runs... Deathwish Inc. Uh, they had a table set up uh, in the room that that stage was in, and he saw us play, and then approached us soon after, like after our set. And yeah. Was like, was like, what's up with you guys? And that's part, <laughs> of, that, that's part of that relationship. And you mentioned obviously kind of recording Dead Horse, and obviously recently have been doing the these sort of anniversary shows for for that record, so. How has it kind of been sort of revisiting that material with the the Jeremy Bohm of 2019 sort of thing? Uh, it's, it was really crazy. I mean, we pretty much just wrapped up the official shows. You know, like when we go to, when we're doing the Step Heaven tour uh, next month in Europe and UK, like we're going to play, I think we've talked about playing Dead Wars in full stuff because we have like an hour set so yeah like, fuck it. <laughs> I just knocked out the first 19 minutes of the set <laughs> yeah uh, so and of course I was 
everybody over there was asking us to do it. So, like, why not? Um, but I, I never would have thought in my heart of hearts to do this, to do the Dead Horse anniversary thing, because I kind of figure most people jumped on for part of the scene. Right. And I know a lot of people throughout the years would even call Parting the Sea our first album, which I honestly don't agree with. We wouldn't agree with that. But yeah. it's, it's, it was people's entries, entry point, you know? So I never would have thought to do anything like a tour. We, we had wanted, we had talked about doing like a deluxe, uh, a deluxe version of the record. We talked about doing that like years ago, Nick and I, uh, because we're just completists, and we wanted to have each one of our records to have one of those books. Yeah. Uh, so we had talked about doing that for years, but as far as the tour, I would have never thought about it because it's a fucking 19-minute record. Like, <laughs> yeah. Like, like, to promote that feels like we would just be taking advantage of people or something. Um, and also, like, I didn't think people cared that much. Like, and that's not me trying to sound humble or whatever, like, for me, like, obviously, Honest Sleep is on that record. I just figured, for most people, that was the record that Honest Sleep was on, and that's all they cared about. Yeah. So, so to play these shows, especially the first one, which was on the East Coast, which was in Baltimore, and see how many people sang along to songs, like, passionately, to songs that we genuinely hadn't played in eight or nine years because we just thought the songs kind of stunk. Yeah. And, or not even just stunk, just like they felt dated and primitive to us. And just see the reaction from people who'd be like, oh, fuck, people, people do care about this. <laughs> yeah. in, a way, in a way that I never thought. Um, and that was very, 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 very overwhelming. And made me feel like these shows aren't some sort of a lame cash grab. Yeah. I, and again, like, I, I, we wouldn't have thought to do it, but the internet had its way of being a very loud voice. <laughs> yeah. do it. Like, hey, send yours a dead horse to a tour. Send yours a dead horse to a tour. So we were like, well, fuck, man. Like, we, you know, we haven't done a headlining tour in a minute. Like, why not? We're doing this deluxe thing. Like, let's see how the East Coast will go. And it was just very serendipitous where it was also Pianos Become the Deep tenure of their record Old Pride. Yeah. And they hadn't played shows in years with Kyle screaming. Yeah. So we were like, well, fuck, man. If if Pianos is down to do that and Kyle is down to do that, what's stopping us? Like, let's just do that for old time's sake. And it just sort of, you know, evolved into doing a Midwest tour and then now this West Coast tour that we just got home from. Which is why it's not extra great. So. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it was it was really nice. I, I like genuinely songs like "Swimming with Sharks" and like "Throwing Copper." We hadn't put broken records on a set list in years. Yeah. Like it was just it was really it was really really nice mm. and yeah it, it felt great. And in terms of kind of like the. I guess the evolution of the band. So if I take obviously my experience of you guys over here in the UK as an example, like obviously saw you at Slam Dunk earlier this year, but like the very first time I saw you um, was 
in uh, Brighton on, I think it might have even been the first time you'd come over to the UK, like just after Dead Horse had come out, because I think uh, Holy Raw Records had kind of done a special yeah. pressing of it. Yeah, 2010, I think. Yeah, so I think it's about, sounds about right, but like, how has it kind of been for you to see kind of the, from, from the inside perspective, like the evolution of the band from playing like smaller rooms to to playing festivals and kind of getting the bigger crowd reactions? Has it been quite an overwhelming experience? It has, yeah, it has, for sure. Um, but it's, it's something that I think if when I dwell on it too much, it only invites in a certain level of anxiety. Right. Once you're paying attention to the big shows, it then opens up the door for you feeling bad about yourself when the shows aren't so big anymore. Right. So I've done my very best to not be too absorbed in it because I felt the feeling of excitement and I felt the feeling of, oh, is this not going so well anymore? And then having to be talked into, you know, all the excuses as to maybe why a show isn't what it used to be that long. You know, everyone will always offer an excuse as to, oh, well, it's festival season. Yeah. Uh, you know, oh, maybe the support isn't as strong as tour. Oh, so-and-so is just in town this week. You know, like, I, th- I think, like, especially after doing these dead horse shows and blah, 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 like, we purposely put them in rooms that we would have played in the beginning. Yeah. Like, of course, I enjoy the feeling of playing in front of a thousand people in a cool venue and it's this and that, but... In my heart of hearts, like, I'm always going to enjoy the 200 cap room without a barrier. Yeah. But what makes that tough is that we all, four of the five of us, live off this band. We don't have any other job. Yeah. So, financially speaking, it's hard to do a tour of 200 cap rooms and see a profit at the end of the tour. Yeah. Because there's a lot more expenses as time has gone on. Yeah. So now there's management. There's there's road you know tour managers and merch people and, and and so like you know there's a lot of hands in the pot, understandably. So it's a tough it's a tough world to sort of sort of guide because I'll always love the small shows, but you risk your happiness putting yourself in the larger rooms. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? It's a, it's a tough thing. Yeah. And like festivals. I like festivals. I like playing festivals as much as the next person. Would I take playing a festival over playing a club show? Fuck no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, festivals are nice for the ego and for the paycheck. That's it. But, <laughs> yeah. But, but like, the barrier, the, I don't like looking at an open field where you know it's it's just there's a huge barrier and, and everything like that and like it's just such a detachment you know but you do it because 
we hope to win somebody over and or you know we're just a we're just a time frame in someone's you know schedule on their festival ticket yeah um but yeah it, it's i just try to not think too much about anything because it just leads to different leads you down different paths of worry and anxiety you know yeah and kind of on that sort of, I guess, worry and anxiety kind of thing, like something that a lot of people have kind of credited you for and and it's kind of very obvious throughout your sort of records, both Touche and Hesitation Wounds, that like your lyrical output is very sort of open and honest about whatever subject you want to talk about. And I think kind of maybe detrimentally that's kind of opened you up to people sort of maybe either interpreting it the wrong way or kind of quote-unquote punishing you if they ever meet you saying they've had kind of similar experiences and, and the bands helped them x y and z reasons sort of thing so has that kind of been a difficult thing to come to terms with that because one you want to be so open and honest but then you've kind of got the flip side of having quote-unquote super fans maybe being a bit too intense to you personally sort of thing Yeah. You know, where I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to do this unless I was being honest, you know. And I, and I, I like to hope everyone feels that way. I know it's not true, but you know, I, I've always stood by saying, if someone is, look, there's a million and a half things a moment in every day to take your attention. Yeah. You know, like, there's, uh, we live in a world of just clickbait in your fucking home, right? So we've been a band for 11 years, and if someone is still going out of their way to type our name into Spotify or YouTube or, or, or pull out the LP on their, you know, wh- whatever it is, when there's a million new songs that come out every single day, like, I owe it to those people to be real, yeah. you know? And, and uh, I've always done my best to do that. But with that has definitely come with a price. And I don't, I would never fault anybody for feeling the way they do with wanting to talk yeah. about the subject. I get it. I would do the same thing. Like... When I was a young kid, I, at the first time I saw Glassjaw over to the Deftones in like 2000, I waited in the parking lot to meet Daryl to tell him how much his lyrics and everything had meant to me. So like, I get it. I, I can't fault anybody for it. But I never would have assumed the amount that it's happened. Yeah. And and I, 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 I'm cautious to, to sound like I'm this special person or, or anything like that because I don't want it to make it sound like, oh, I've, my life is so hard, people love what I do. You know, I, <laughs> yeah. I, don't, I don't mean at all to sound like that. You know, There's enough people who hate what I do, so I get it. It's fine. But um, I, didn't, I didn't predict the toll that it would take on me yeah. with, 
seeds specifically after stage four. Like, parting the seed and survive by, I was met with a lot of people wanting to talk about depression and self-harm and, and things like that. And I'll always listen and I'll always be kind and I'll always, you know, yeah. of course. Um, but there were always levels of extremes too, where someone would say something that would take me by surprise every now and again. That would I didn't know how to respond to. Yeah. You know? And and I don't know that people realize the weight that you're putting on some on a stranger with that stuff. Hmm. You know, because I don't have the answers. That's why I'm writing about it. Yeah. Know? And I know it's someone just wanting to share because they maybe don't feel like they're alone anymore in what they're feeling. Mm. And I and I understand that. That's why I shared my shit with, you know, my, my gratitude to Daryl or to Jeff Rickley and all these other singers that meant so much to me and mean so much to me um, still. But, but, uh, but it's, um, Stage four was since that record. It's been, it's it's been a bit much. I live in constant uh, jealousy of Nick, Tyler, Elliot, and Clayton, who after a show can walk out into the audience and have everyone just want to give them a high five or yeah, you know, tell them great show or and that's that. And I, I look at the crowd and I see their interactions and I'm like, okay, I feel like this is a upbeat crowd. I feel like I could walk out and just have a good time and give some hugs and shake some hands and thank some people for coming to the show. And then the second I walk out, it's just those same people that were telling them great show turn their head and it's the demeanor 100% changes and they then tell me that their brother just died. Yeah. And I then just... It just completely fucks me up. Yeah, I can imagine. And because I never know what to say other than my condolences. I'm so sorry, you know. Um, and I don't know that they're looking for anything, you know. It's just it's tough and it's been tough. And I don't want to ever become the person that just hides backstage and doesn't go talk to people and act like a fucking mysterious guy, because that's not what I am. Yeah, I'm yeah. I'm the least mysterious person. <laughs> yeah. I'm videos of my goddamn cute-ass dog all day. Like, I'm the least, <laughs> the least mysterious person, but, um, you know, I'm, I, I do hold, I'm pretty, I'm pretty jealous of, of certain vocalist friends that have sort of uh, kept themselves a little more in the in the dark. Yeah. Sort of, sort of like Jordan from Lot of for example, like never really having social media and, and all that sort of stuff. Like he's I think I imagine he's doing a lot better with this stuff than I have been. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh and yeah, it's like and if it's not just on tour, like, you know, my Instagram direct message is box is just constantly flooded with that stuff too and I feel guilty for never replying to it but I just can't yeah yeah I mean it must take sort of a lot of kind of sort of mental and emotional energy off off yourself as well sort of thing yeah and again like 
guilty even complaining about it because <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't want to complain about it because it, I, it, it's so nice that that people want to share their experiences and stuff. But I just feel like I'm not I'm not the person. Yeah, no, I get that. I'm going through it with with them. You know, I'm on the same level as them. Yeah. Well, if we move on to kind of maybe a bit of relief for yourself, I don't know, but hesitation wounds obviously is something that's kind of happening a bit more presently with the new record coming out. Um, obviously, when that project kind of first came to to public eyes, it was kind of branded as this super group, um, obviously with with yourself and and the guys from Trap Them and Hope Con and things like that. So, how did that collection of of people come together and? For you personally, was it just kind of, was it a relief to do something that wasn't touche? Yes, <laughs> um, because hesitation wounds operates in a one billion percent polar opposite capacity. Yeah, than touche. Touche will spend a month writing a song. Hesitation wounds spends an hour and it right. one. Um, so that band started with the idea of getting a bunch of friends in a room that either didn't know each other or hardly knew each other and just seeing how many songs we can write in the day and that was the seven inch so oh wow okay at that point uh, I I had met Scuba uh, Steven from who used to be in Trap Them I had met Scuba in fucking 2007 or something like that uh, when my old band was on tour because we ended up playing a house show uh, with Trap Them and Scuba wasn't even in the band at the time he was doing merch for Trap Them which is crazy right. uh, and we just clicked became friends and saw him over the years and then became really good friends once he was in Trap Them and Touche had sort of taken off we played some shows together and just you know, he was one of those guys that just lived, like, since I've known him, he's lived in fucking Florida, New York, Seattle, Texas. Like, he's just, he's one of those guys that just lives in a different state every Yeah, year. yeah. Um, but now he's, now he's a family man, married with two kids, lives in Arizona. Uh, but, uh, so I always just, I always just loved him. Like, he's, he's one of the snarkiest snarkiest people you'll ever meet in your life he's I, I don't know I don't know if you play music or do you, are you in any band uh, I, yeah I do vocals in a band okay so you probably know what it's like to want to be in a band with someone regardless of whether they're great at their instrument or not great at their yeah, instrument yeah. it's like I just want to be around that guy all the time so I never looked at Scuba like oh that dude's a fucking ripping bass player he's definitely a good bass player but I just wanted to be around Scuba. Yeah. So I was like, I want Scuba to be in this band. And then Niraj, I've always just been a huge fan of because I'm a diehard Hope Con and Suicide File fan. Yeah. I love both those bands so much. And he lives in Los Angeles. And I see him around. Um, Touche did a weekend of shows with Hope Con in like 2009 or 2010. And I just really liked him. Um, he's very, very kind, uh, very sweet, very humble person. Uh, and Scuba and Naraj both live in Brooklyn for like 
at certain time periods, so they both knew each other but never played music together or anything like that. And then around that same time, I had become friends with Jay Weinberg, yeah. who, who at the time was just in against me. Um, this was way before Slipknot. Yeah. So, uh, and he didn't know those two guys at all. So I was like, well, Jay should fucking play drums. Um, and there was even a quick moment where this guy named Sean Lopez, who was the guitar player of the band Far, uh, who also played in the band Crosses, which has Chino from the Deftones. Oh, right. Remember that thing? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So there was even a, me- a moment where this guy, Sean Lopez, uh, was going to play second guitar, um, but he ended up not being able to make it to that first practice. <laughs> um, so it ended up just becoming the four of us, but we got in the room and wrote three songs and then recorded them the next day. That's what ended up becoming the demo. That's that nice. Seven-inch. And then we played a handful of shows. Yeah, I mean, even right now, I think we've played less than 10 shows. Yeah. Maybe or maybe about 11 or 12 or something. But a couple of years went by, and then we did the LP on 6131 Records, um, and it was still the four of us. Uh, that was a situation where we wrote three songs in one day, three songs the next day, three songs the next day, or four songs the next day, and then recorded them the, the fourth day. That's crazy. And that's what Awake for Everything is. Um, we just churned it out. Yeah. So it was like Mirage came in with some riff ideas, or Jay will start just playing a drum beat, and then Mirage just make up some shit on top of it. And that's what ended up becoming a wait for everything. And when that came out, we did a couple more shows. Um, we did some dates of like playing some superstars and retalks. Uh, but it's a hard band to manage because at that point, Jay was living in Nashville. Um, Scoop was, like I said, in Arizona, and then, you know, I have Touche. Yeah. Uh, and then, when we first actually, Jay had left against me, and then the first day of writing, I think, for Wait for Everything, was when Jay auditioned for Slipknot. Okay. It was, it was, it was fucking, like, that day. Because he had shown up to practice hella late. <laughs> <laughs> And we were like, what's going on? And he was just like, I can't tell you. And we're like, fuck you. <laughs> like, I genuinely signed a contract, I can't tell you. And we're like, you're being lame, fucking <laughs> tell us. And it was like, a couple of days later, he called me aside and was like, dude, I just for slip on. <laughs> like, wow, okay. And so then with him being in Slipknot, things got really difficult for playing shows. Yeah. He basically was contractually obligated to not be in our band. Right. And we respected that. It's like, yeah, like, I get it. But he kept sort of thinking he could still do hesitation wounds. And we were kind of on the other side being like, are you sure? Yeah, yeah. Like, do you really want to jeopardize the biggest opportunity in the entire world to play these fucking garage shows with us, like, kind of a thing. So, Hesitation Wins didn't really do a lot, because uh, I was busy with Touche, uh, Scuba had just had a kid, and then, understandably, Jay had Slipknot. Yeah. Um, and, Niraj is also a teacher, at this, definitely was a teacher at that time, so he only had winter and, and summer break yeah. times when 
we were busy with our with our respective bands. So it became really difficult for Hesitation Was to really do anything. It became very obvious that we were just like a recording project. Um, and now, fast forward to where we are today with this new 12-inch, um, which we recorded last year, actually. Uh, it's, this thing took forever to come out. And all <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll explain why. But um, it just became really obvious that Jay wasn't going to be able to do it. Yeah. And, and again, no one faults him for that. Yeah. Like, like we we had some situations where we were supposed to play some shows or, or whatever, and last minute he wasn't able to do it. So for that Planes for the Sake of the Stars Retox tour, which was only a couple days, uh, last minute we got, we had to get another drummer, like genuinely last minute, and we got this dude Jared Alexander to play drums, who was the drummer of Suicide File, but then also I think played drums for like My Chemical Romance. And he okay. He just played drums for Alkaline Trio. Um, great drummer, wonderful guy. Uh, but he, he hopped in and played those shows with us. Um, and then Touche was getting back from a European tour, and we got offered to do, at Station Wounds got an offer to do a show opening for Glassdraw here in L.A. And uh, Jay thought he was going to be able to do it. Turned out he wasn't. Uh, able to do it and that's when we were like well let's just call it what it is and uh, I I hit up Tommy who plays drums in the band Gouge Away yeah. who's a fucking ripping ass drummer because uh, he also plays in the band Axis and I watched him fill in for Gate Creeper oh sick so if I'm like this dude can play double bass this dude can this dude like is a if you if you wanted to be like a a hyper aggressive drummer, like he's got the ability. Yeah. You know, like he's like he killed it in Gouge Away because he's very reserved and he's very tasteful in Gouge Away. But like you give that man a double bass pedal, he can go. You know? <laughs> yeah. So, so I knew his capabilities like that. So I was like, Tommy, is there any way you'd be down to do this glass drum show with us? And he just came straight up to the rescue. Like Touche got home from a European tour on like a Monday. He had just played Sound and Fury in LA and he lives in Florida. Driven the band driven them back driven Gouge Away back to Florida from LA, so that's cross country. Got to Orlando. That the mo- the night they got to Orlando, he hopped on a plane and flew all the way back to LA. Jesus. Uh his symbols got lost in the mail. Oh, or, no. uh, not in the mail, on the flight. He lands in LA. We practice that night on a Thursday. We practice that night. We write two songs that same night. Uh, the next day, uh, we practice that morning. We write three more songs and we play with Glass Jaw that night. And then Sunday, the next day, we go in and we record this new EP. That's nuts. It was just like. He not only did he learn the set and then remembered how to play these songs that we had wrote and then recorded them the Sunday that he flew home Monday. <laughs> he just he just like stepped up like no one else and just killed it. So we owe Tommy everything for this record. Yeah. Um, so and and yeah, so we wrote that we wrote it and recorded it and then um, it took me a minute to get the vocals done because I had to write all that shit and then uh, it was. 
you know, we had finished recording it and we're trying to figure out art for it. And I'm a massive Mark McCoy fan um, who, uh, for those listening, I, I, or for whatever, he, uh, he sang in the band Charles Bronson. Yeah. He sang in Dossoth and a hundred bands on his label, Youth Attack. Um, and he's been doing art since the beginning, but um, in these last couple of years, it, some of his art, album art that he's been putting out for bands has just been just top of his game outrageous. Like he did a full, he did the last two Full of Hell album covers. Oh, of course, um, yeah, yeah. Like the, the Nun with the face on yeah. fire is the most striking unbelievable album cover in aggressive music that I have seen in yeah. since I can remember. And that and that to me I was just like, this motherfucker is <laughs> insane. Um so also recently he's he's done like Regional Justice Center, he's done um Pig Destroyer, uh he did that nothing album cover with the mask, the girl in the mask. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um so I, I'm just a huge fan. So I talked to Deathwish, I was like, yo, do you guys mind if I hit up Mark to do the art for this? And they're like, that's a fucking sick idea. Let's do it. And um, I, I live with constant punk rock guilt where I feel like I just, I just have this problem where I feel like, uh, like no one, no one will take me seriously because I'm in touche, like as if like we're not cool or something. Right. I don't know why the fuck I feel that way. But so I was like, oh man, if I hit up Mark, he's probably gonna think I'm lame. <laughs> I wrote him an email and he was just the nicest, most kind, gracious person. But he was like, I, you know, I wrote him in, I would say September, and he was like, "Here's the deal, I'm backed up until February." Oh wow! He was like, "Can you wait until February?" And I was like, "Well, we're not going to tour, so yeah, yeah, <laughs> no problem." So, uh, so yeah, we waited, and uh, that's what took, into, you know, for the record to come out almost literally a year after we recorded. <laughs> but. Uh, uh, I'm, I have no problem saying the artwork for this fucking EP is insanely cool. Yeah. Like, when he started sending us all the stuff he was making, I was just, my jaw was on the ground. Yeah. Like, I'm so fucking excited. And he had all these really great explanations as to why he did the art the way he did and blah, blah, blah. So, it, I'm really, really excited. I mean, we're, when I say we're not going to tour, I can't say that with a pin in it. Like, yeah, yeah. We're still trying to figure out when we can. Like, we really, really would love to come over and do something in Europe and the UK eventually. But it's hard to also gauge where the correct place to play is. Yeah, you know? of course. We have no idea how many people would care. No <laughs> yeah. It could literally be us playing a 50 cap room, and that could be it, you know? And then, in terms of kind of the sort of differentiating sort of styles for. Compared comparisons of like Touche and and Hesitation Wounds, how do you approach that like lyrically? Because I'm not sorry, like vocally in terms of kind of what your kind of output is. Because obviously on the surface, Hesitation Wounds is a more aggressive band. Yeah. So is it just that you you're using that as an outlet to be a more aggressive version of yourself, or how how do you kind of approach it? I, I mean, I've, from the beginning of this conversation, like I've always loved metal yeah. and, and hyper aggressive music. Um, like Converge is still to this day my favorite hardcore band. Yeah. Um, and so, like, I, 
to be in a band like this is just something where like to sing in a band like this is just something that always seems so fun to me. Yeah. Uh, like to be in a band that basically has breakdowns is like funny to me. But, <laughs> yeah. but it's fun, you know, like I can't knock it. It's fun. Um, and not like chunky breakdowns, but like, you know, more fucking traditional heavy hardcore breakdowns. So, um, so yeah, like, I like it because I don't have to dig deep into the fucking darkest parts of my inner soul yeah. to write these lyrics. Like, this this band leans more political. Like, whatever's pissing me off that day, I can write a song about. Yeah. Um, I don't have to talk. It's not... The songs aren't as personal. Like, there's a song on the EP called Charlatan Fuck, which is clearly about Donald Trump. Yeah. Like... Uh, there's there's songs about on the last record about gun violence. There's songs about uh, immigration and how fucking completely completely awful uh, the U.S. has been in that regard. Like there's it's just it's just a wonderful outlet for me to to get these things off my chest. Uh, in a way that it wouldn't feel natural for Touche to do. Yeah. Like if the new Touche record, there was randomly a song about Donald Trump, it wouldn't make any fun. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. I, get, also, I get that. Also, and to be fair, I don't want to give Donald Trump Touche's attention. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's fair. <laughs> yeah, and, exactly. And then in terms of kind of, as I mentioned, like when, when has Touche when you sort of started to kind of get eyes on it obviously there was the kind of quote-unquote super group sort of tag put to it and i think for maybe a wider audience out of the the group of people that make up hesitation wounds you're the one that's maybe the most recognizable and most well known so was there kind of a not necessarily a backlash but because i don't know like for me like i like to think i've got like a wide-ranging palette when it comes to sort of alternative music so like i can slip into something that's a bit more screamo leaning and then go the complete opposite end and listen to the body sort of thing so but were there was there kind of a a pushback from quote-unquote traditional touche fans that had listened to hesitation wounds and were like well what the fuck's this kind of thing truthfully not that i've seen okay i think I think people, the reaction I sort of got was just like, oh, if I can't have a new hesitation, I mean, if I can't have a new Touche record, at least I have this to hold me over. Right, uh, okay. Like, like at, at its worst, that's the reaction I got. Like, oh, <laughs> yeah. Well, if I can't get a new Touche record right now, this I have this for the moment. Yeah. It's fine. I'm cool with that. Uh, you know, it's... Um, I would love, I would really, really love to be able to do more with Hesitation Wins because I feel like if I was able, if we were all able to like give it a lot more legs, you know, and I like do full tours and stuff like that, like I would like to hope that I could, that it could sort of have its own, its own personality, yeah. its own, its own little subsection, the way like Patrick Kinlan has self defense family and drug church. Yeah. Um, but, but because, you know, we all have 
our respective other bands or careers or families, you know, it's like, it's, it's tough, but, um, yeah, I, I never really felt anything like that. I think it was just people being like, whoa, it's cool to hear this hyper aggressive thing you guys are able to do. Yeah. Also, like, I always, I, I joke that Touche is lame. <laughs> it's always either like we're the softest thing on the hard show or the hardest thing on the soft show. Yeah, yeah. Like that's 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 our complete like <laughs> our our the two lanes I would say we it would be it'd be that or uh playing the hipster festival Sunday at noon. Yeah. Like <laughs> yeah. That's, that's the two lanes we reside in. Um so so I feel though like as someone who listens to Touche and then heard Hesitation Wounds just blind would probably be like oh it's it's not that crazy yeah you know, it's like I'm still screaming I'm not doing like a fucking death metal voice or something you know <laughs> yeah. if, I was, if I was trying to like change my change the way I approach screaming other than just being extra angry you know that's kind of like for me, that's kind of where I differentiate it is because when I'm screaming in touche, it's like because of, because I'm it feels like the way I'm, I'm approaching the lyrics, but it, in like a an emotional sense. But with with hesitation, when I'm screaming because I'm I'm just fucking fed up. And yeah, I'm you know. So like it's a it's two different ways for me to have an outlet, and it's it's very satisfying to be able to have, switch between the two. You know? Yeah, and just one last thing that I wanted to to mention. Obviously, you brought up the the situation with Jay and him. Obviously, moving on to to Slipknot. So, is it bizarre for you to think that you were you were friends and in a band with a guy that is now in arguably the biggest metal band in the world? Uh, it's. I mean, while we're doing, I mean, yeah, he was in hesitant. I mean, he was he was in both bands there for like a couple of years. Mm. Um, and it, it was just sort of funny because I definitely loved Slipknot when they first came out, like those first two, or especially the first record. When that came out, I was still very much a metalhead kid. Yeah. Um, so I was, you know, obsessed with that record like most people or whatever. Um, but life moves in such a funny way to where it never really, I never took it too seriously. It never shocked me. Like I wasn't. I was never sitting there going like, "Damn, we got the drummer of Slipknot." That's yeah, crazy, you know? yeah. Because I known because I had known Jay for such a minute there with like him being against me, and and he's got sort of a rock starry sort of personality right. to where it just made sense yeah. for him to be doing that. Um, he, yeah, like I'm happy for the guy. It's really it's quite cool to see such a young person get to do something like that yeah um, but uh yeah it's it, it's crazy i mean we weren't it didn't help you know like we didn't get to we never used that to sell to try to sell oh no 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 that's not what i, I was intending oh, no, but, yeah. just, just that out there. Like, we weren't for example like we weren't we didn't want to get him in any shit yeah so we didn't do the sticker on the front of the record that says "Members of Touche and Warrior and Slipknot." As much as like, <laughs> yeah. as much as, like 
that looks crazy and would look very funny to someone in a record store being like, wait, what the fuck? <laughs> but, uh, and I'm sure that wouldn't help sell those records. But, uh, you know, we respected his situation and we just sort of were like, well, let's, we'll just let the press say that for us. Yeah. You know? um, and hope that it doesn't get him into any shit. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, uh, you know, I don't, we're not as close as we used to be, he and I, um, but I still wish him the best, and I, I'm happy for him, and I'm yeah. proud of him for, for doing what he does, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's cool to see, but I, I could never, I could never be sour towards him for not being able to do hesitation, you know, it's like, we from the get go were like, dude, this band is not important. It's not yeah, serious. yeah. It's not, it's not active enough. Like literally, we're playing fucking house shows or like tiny rooms, like for fun. You know, you're literally playing like fucking stadium. Yeah. And you have, <laughs> yeah. Your, band, your band has a festival. Like, like don't jeopardize that at all. Yeah, you know? yeah. So, um, so he he did the right thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> best for him to not be in this band yeah. but we wish him the best and before I round things up Jeremy one last thing that I want yeah. to talk to you about is kind of the I guess another string to your bow is the, the Secret Voice Records sort of side of things that you do so in terms of that was it have you always kind of wanted to do a record label or was that just something that came along in, in later in life um sorry one second that's right um, oh man, I've always wanted to do a record label. It, it was, uh, but I never had the means because, you know, I, it's expensive. Yeah. Um, and Deathwish were very, 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 uh, helpful and kind and welcoming to let me do this because it's a subsidiary of their label. Yes, of course. Which means, which means that I get to find the bands and, deal with the bands and then they're nice enough to pay for it so, <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah it's been it's been really cool you know I haven't done a ton of things at this point you know I've, I've done a fair amount of 7 inches and then I got to do that Seisha re, uh, reissue yeah. uh, which was the coolest experience ever a lot of work but a really really gratifying experience um, but uh yeah, so lately I've just been kind of doing, like, the poetry uh, releases, uh, like, self-release things using the Secret Voice label. I, I like to, when, the thing, when I started doing it, I really liked the way Wes Eisel did Heartworm, right. um, which, for those listening, Wes from American Nightmare and Cold Cave, he does a label called Heartworm, which he releases music as well as books and themes and, and cassettes and all sorts of stuff. I really like the way he sort of approached that. And so when I started Secret Voice, uh, I went out to coffee with him and sort of picked his brain a little bit. Okay, cool. And he was very, very, very helpful in in approach. Um, But, yeah, it's been really fun, just, like, bands that I love reaching out. Like, I'm currently... uh, I I haven't put out music in a minute. The last music I did was the Gouge Away 7-inch as well as the Station Collection, Collection. But I'm working with a new band right now uh, that are recording that uh, I'm hope 
the singer's working on lyrics, so like, uh, you know, we're giving him his space to yeah. finish that. Um, it's the band, uh, I have no problem talking about it because it, it's going to happen. It's the band Soul Glow from. Oh, sick. So, yeah. Yeah, they're fucking amazing. Yeah, I saw them, um, they toured over in Europe and they played a festival in Germany, so I saw them there and they were fucking sick. Yeah, they're unbelievable. They did our, they did our East Coast tour with the East Coast Dead Horse tour. Oh, cool. And, and uh, I always liked their music and, um, again, they're a band that I thought would be, you know, too cool to play with two shades, but when I reached out to them, they are so nice and, uh, so they, they they took the shows and I was it was really just I wanted to see them live and I was like well this gives me an excuse to get to see them a few times and um and seeing them live solidified it for me I was like okay like I like them on recording and now I've seen them live and they're really fucking good yeah so the last day of that tour I I, I brought up you know if they were interested in doing something um so they're working on an EP uh currently and um and yeah, uh, I'm I'm excited for for when they finish it. I'm really excited to hear how it's gonna go. But um, yeah, that's that's the next thing I'm planning to do. That's uh, cool. But you know, I, I don't have an idea when it's gonna happen. I'm just excited that it will happen. Yeah, yeah. Know? And I have to pose the question because I'm very much like you. I'm a record collector myself. How how many records are in the collection at the moment? Do you reckon? <laughs> I pull up my uh, my Excel sheet because, of course, I have to keep track of everything. <laughs> yeah. uh, I I don't know if I can give you a, a specific number, but I can tell you just how many like seven inches. So and like things like that. So normal seven inches, not including splits. I have fifteen, just about fifteen hundred. Yeah. Uh, Seven-inch splits. I Sorry. <laughs> uh, I have about, with income, including 12 inch splits and comps, soundtracks, and jazz records, I have about 3,500 LPs. That's, that's impressive. Like, it's disgusting, is what it is. No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, like, when I see that, I'm just like, I got it. Uh, I've been selling stuff. Like, I've, yeah, um, I've seen. And, and uh, I've also been helping like for a side hustle because music is not the only way I can survive. Um, like making music, uh, I've been like our, our booking agent 
was like, I need to, he, he, his mom got in a situation where he was like, I'm going to buy her house from her to help her out financially back in Massachusetts. So he was like, I'm going to sell off my records. So basically I was like, well, I'll do it for you and just take a percentage or whatever. Um, so I sold up his collection, which was like the last two years, basically. Um, but no, I've been selling off in, in between that, some of my stuff where I was like, I don't need eight copies of this one record. Yeah, yeah. I could just take the most limited copy and feel good about it. Like, or, or honestly, like I'm going through and I'm finding a lot of like hardcore records or, or punk records or whatever, where I'm like, I genuinely have not listened to this record in like eight years. Yeah. I own it just because it was a part of my life and I like it. I liked it at the time, but even if I put it on right now, I guarantee you it will not hit me in the way it used to. So like, <laughs> this record belongs better in someone who, someone's collection who's going to actually like it. Yeah, it? yeah. So like, that for me is, has been sort of that release where I'm like, I can let go of this and let someone else enjoy it, and if I really, really want it again, I can always get it. Yeah, of course. You know? So, I mean, I've been listening to so much fucking like, jazz and like, and shit lately like I hardly listen to aggressive music like on a turntable yeah I'm like I, I can live without some of this stuff you know? <laughs> yeah so that, that's kind of where I'm at right now because yeah uh, but I think everyone kind of goes through that as they get older oh yeah definitely like my mine's not even knocking half of that but it's already starting to get get out of control in my in my little room of storage as well so I can yeah once you once you fill up the the, the fucking the cabinet or the rack or whatever and you're just staring at it you're like oh god <laughs> yeah. I either gotta find something bigger to store these in or I gotta make room yeah no I yeah. get that perfect um, Jeremy how I like to, to round everything off is to ask my guests uh, what their favourite song is but with a bit of a twist so as you're in two bands you get two bites of the cherry um, but what is your favourite touche and hesitation wound song that you like to play live and why hard to say because we haven't been able to play any of the new songs live right <laughs> um, but uh, it's tough because um, I won't make this difficult I'm just going to give you an answer <laughs> um, I'm, I'm going into my fucking iTunes really quick to look at uh from the so I can't name something off the new EP because for hesitation ones because again we haven't played that yeah, stuff of course. Live, but I will say that uh, playing the song Teeth yeah from for everything is I that's one of my favorite songs um, and for Touche I mean. It's such an obvious. It's, it seems pretty obvious, but like just for like crowd partici- participation and everything like that, like uh, playing like Tilde from the first song on Party Machine. Yeah, yeah. It's it's always it's always a good time. Yeah, it's always it's always rowdy and it's always you know like that's that's always a really really fun one. Um, but uh, I would say that. But my favorite. I still think, oddly enough, a lot of our collective favorite favorite song is the title track "Is Survived By" from "Is Survived By." Yeah. Like, 
we never really play it live because it's never really translated that well live, but it's it's a song that I think we're all collectively extraordinarily proud of. That's cool. Perfect. Well, yeah. Jeremy, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it. Um, and looking forward to seeing you over here with Death Heaven later in the year. Oh, yeah, man. Uh, if if uh, we run into each other at that show, please come up and say hi. Yes, most definitely will do. All right, take care of yourself. Cheers. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. So there we have it, folks. Again, a massive thank you to Jeremy for having a little chat with me. Um, I forgot to mention at the top of the show, um, Touche Amore have actually released a new track, uh, which is called Deflector. Uh, You can listen to it on all various uh, music streaming platforms. It's fucking rad, but it's going to be when it's from Touche. Um, But yeah, really exciting to hear new music from, from them as well. Um, as always, you can keep up to date with what both Touche Amore and Hesitation Wounds uh, are doing on all various social media platforms, which will be linked in the description of this episode, as per usual. Uh, finally, one final thing, uh, Touche Amore are heading out on the road with uh, on a co-headline tour with Death Heaven. Um, they will also be bringing along uh, portrayal of guilt for the ride so if they are playing a city town anywhere near you or even if they're not near you go travel go see them they're definitely both bad well all three bands are fucking really really rad live so would highly recommend um there may be a, quite a few new listeners this week so thank you for for joining us if this is your first experience of the just inside podcast then feel free to uh subscribe on whatever podcast platform you use give us a little review give us a rating yeah just would be wonderful for you to to share the love um but that is all for another week uh got some awesome guests coming up in the next couple of weeks next week's in particular i'm not going to give it away who is but probably one of my favorite episodes i've ever recorded so that's saying a lot considering I've just spoken to Jeremy Balm. Um, But thank you as always for stopping by the Justin Insight podcast and I'll see you soon.